The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. It's nice stuff. It is, isn't it? I got uh, just the thing to go with that. Cuban. Hmm. <laughs> I did a little favor for an FBI guy. Now, I was under the impression <clears throat> that these were illegal. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest, doesn't it? It's funny, isn't it? How we draw that line? Yeah. What line is that? Well, what's legal, what's illegal, you know, Cuban cigars, alcohol. You know, if we were drinking this in 1930, we'd be breaking the law. Another year, we'd be okay. Hmm. Who knows what will be legal next year? You mean like pot? Yeah. Like pot or whatever. Cocaine? Heroin? I'm just saying it's arbitrary. Well, you ought to visit lockup. You hear a lot of guys talking like that. Hey, man, what you busting me with these 14 bales of ganja? It's all going to be legal next year when... Willie Nelson's president. <laughs> Shit, buddy. Don't want to go one way either. Sometimes there's stuff that's legal that shouldn't be. I mean, friggin' meth used to be legal. Used to sell it over every counter at every pharmacy across America. The guy that came to their senses on that one, huh? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 11th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Five one nine six six one thirty six hundred is the number to call to join in on our conversation today, or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today on the show, Robert, I understand in the second half of the show, you're going to be talking about Teaching Johnny to Think. Fascinating new book by uh, Leonard Peikoff. Some lectures he did back in the 80s have been put into print, and they are the solution to what ails us in education. Awesome. Beginning the show, you might have guessed from the original or the opening uh, clip that we had there, we're going to be talking about the actual thought of prohibiting drug prohibition itself. An idea came out of the UN just recently, although I, I have my misgivings about that. <laughs> and we're also going to be talking about the Prince of Pot having been returned to Canada a couple of weeks ago, and his wife Jody is running for the federal liberals under Justin Trudeau, who happens to be in the city today. Going to be speaking at the university here tonight and is speaking, I believe, at the convention center, perhaps as we speak. So should be an interesting uh, 
interesting contrast. I'm just wondering if uh, Mark and Jody are kind of just taking some political pot shots again at the whole political system in terms of trying to turn the, the drug prohibition laws around in this country. Kick it off just to to look at the environment we're in. You know, we're in such a confused and 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 all over the place drug policies in the world. And this comes out of um, the, uh, this is by uh, Somini Satunga from the New York Times, September 8th, just a couple days ago. Coalition urges nations to decriminalize drugs and drug use. And he writes, a coalition of political figures from around the world, including Kofi Annan, the former United Nations Secretary General, and several former European and Latin American presidents, is urging governments to decriminalize a variety of illegal drugs and set up regulated drug markets within their own countries. Ever heard anything like that? The proposal by the group, the Global Commission on Drug Policy, goes beyond its previous call to abandon the nearly half-century-old American-led war on drugs. As part of a report scheduled to be released on Tuesday, the group goes much further than its 2011 recommendations to legalize cannabis. The former Brazilian president, Fernando Henrique Cardasso, a member of the commission, said the group was calling for the legal regulation of, quote, as many of the drugs that are currently illegal as possible, with the understanding that some drugs may remain too dangerous to decriminalize, end quote. The proposal comes at a time when several countries pummeled by drug violence, particularly in Latin America, are rewriting their own drug laws. And when even the United States is allowing state legislatures to gingerly regulate cannabis use. The United, Na- United Nations is scheduled to hold a summit meeting in 2016 to evaluate global drug laws. The commission includes former presidents like Mr. Cardoso of Brazil, Ernesto Zadillo of Mexico, and Ruth Dreyfus of Switzerland, along with George P. Schultz, the former Secretary of State in the Reagan administration, among others. The group stops short of calling on countries to legalize all drugs right away. It calls instead for countries to continue to pursue violent criminal gangs, to stop incarcerating users, and to offer treatment for addicts. Strong resistance is expected from world powers, including the United States and Russia, which favor maintaining strict criminal prohibition. Now, there's a a unison for you, U.S. and Russia together on this one should tell you something. Several Middle Eastern countries, including Iran, impose a death penalty for drug smuggling. Drug laws are being reconsidered by some countries around the world. Uruguay last year became the first country to establish a state-run market for marijuana. Colombia established a national commission to reevaluate its own national policy. In Europe, some countries have long stopped making arrests for marijuana use and possession. President Obama has also questioned the fairness of prosecuting marijuana users. The Global Commission takes aim at criminalizing drug use and possession. Punitive drug law enforcement fuels crime and maximizes the health risks associated with drug use, especially among the most vulnerable, the report goes on to say. John Walsh, drug policy analyst at the Washington Office on Latin America, a human rights advocacy organization, said members of the commission realize that even if the debate is now really open for the first time in half a century, different countries are going to be able to proceed at different paces. And that was from the New York Times of a couple of days ago. But this uh, creates an interesting problem the way I look at it, Robert. Here you see, on the one hand, for example, as you know, as the United Nations is being petitioned to actually propose the decriminalization of, of all drugs, and I see that as a relatively positive development, 
But consider, on the other hand, totally the opposite way, the Associated Press report on August 28th of this year has the headline, UN Health Agency Urges Crackdown on E-Cigarettes. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, it'll be candy cigarettes next, right? And I wouldn't be surprised if it was because of the way they think about that. But that's an issue for a future show. Oh, actually, there were um, calls to uh, criminalize the sale of candy cigarettes. Well, I know, I know. But, I mean, from the UN, locally, I think oh, I thought, saw that. that. That's locally. Yeah. So good luck with the Global Commission on Drug Policies call for more rational drug laws. I don't see it happening. Uh, at least not in my lifetime. I'd be totally surprised if anything happened. But now to move to the pot issue. Everybody's heard of the Prince of Pot. Have you heard of the King of Pot? Who's the King of Pot? Also from Canada. And how interesting it is that both the King of Pot and the Prince of Pot should both be Canadians. And just as the Prince of Pot was being released from an American jail back into Canada, from which country the Americans extradited him, the King of Pot was just receiving a 27-year U.S. prison sentence, as reported by Paul Cherry in the August 21st National Post. Jimmy Cornier, uh, Cornier have you ever heard of him? Ah, uh, New York City. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah that's where he, the, the case is taking place. But he's a Laval native who came to notoriety in New York for operating as a prolific drug smuggler while leading a lavish lifestyle. Um, was sentenced to a 27-year prison term in the United States on August 20th. The sentence comes at the end of a case that began in, began in 2012 when Cornier, dubbed the king of pot by some media, was arrested while trying to enter Mexico. He was later brought to New York, the state where he sold much of the 109,000 kilos of pot he smuggled into the U.S. from Canada. The possibility of Cornier returning to Canada to serve his sentence was a much-discussed issue from both sides of the case. The U.S. does not have a parole system for federal inmates. In Canada, inmates are eligible for full parole after having served one-third of their sentence. They also qualify for statutory or automatic release after having served two-thirds of the sentence if they were previously denied parole and are not considered a risk of reoffending in a violent manner. There are no guarantees that Canada would agree to having Cornier transferred, and Mr. Mc McMahon said... Wednesday, he's aware that few Canadians serving time in the U.S. are being returned to serve time here, which was true with Mark Emery's case, too. Now, unlike the Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, who was actually extradited from Canada to the U.S. for selling an unsmokable seed, <laughs> Cornier, the King of Pot, was arrested and captured in the United States at the Mexican border with actual smokable cannabis. From the Harper government's point of view, then, his reluctance to have the King of Pot serve out his sentence here in Canada may be understandable. But to actually have supported the extradition of a Canadian citizen to U.S. soil over his political advocacy is beyond all moral and rational consideration, as far as I'm concerned. Shame on all the prohibitionists. It's from them that I think the rest of us need to be protected. Now, of course, Mark Emery is back in Canada. I spoke for about 10 minutes with Mark early on the afternoon of Saturday, August 16th. He doesn't see himself being back in the London area physically here until late October at the earliest, he says. So I'm thinking it's going to be even a little later than that. I understand he's in Europe right now. Mm -hmm. He yes. and Jody are in Europe. Until October 3rd. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny. His first comment when I called him was to ask me how I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> he was concerned about what, what I was up to, what's new in my life. Because I imagine when you're locked away for that period of time, you just lose touch with everything. 
And within about 90 seconds, we were already in the midst of a, our usual philosophical discussions about libertarianism and, and how outrageous it was that Stephen Harper is being called a libertarian from time to time, mm. etc. <laughs> the obvious gist of which is that Mark is still very much a libertarian anarchist today, you know, as much as he was when we last heard him speak publicly. His positioning as such makes his and Jody's ploy to run for the federal liberals appear to be a little more than a stunt to anyone who examines the contradictions at play there. This, of course, has been the, a deep philosophical rift that has existed between myself and Mark since the beginning of our Freedom Party days, but has never stopped either of us supporting the essentials of each other's objective in terms of legalizing and get, um, well, not legalizing, but ending prohibition. That's the real key. Um, however, that wasn't the bulk of our conversation. Interestingly, we had an interesting philosophical con uh, conversation about the metaphysical ramifications of time, time itself, past, present, future. That conversation began with Mark's already deep sense of how his whole jail sentence period seems to be a bad dream and not part of his real life, even just days after he got out of jail, and the sense that only the present really exists. So as we go to our first break... On this side of the bumper, we'll be hearing CTV Windsor's coverage of Prince of Pop Mark Emery's return to Canada from an American prison. And on the other side of the bumper, an earlier June 24th Sun interview, partial, with Mark's wife, Jody Emery, who has, just in the past two days or so, filed her nomination papers to run for Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party in next year's federal election. Then our conversation will continue. After bouncing between four U.S. prisons, including two stretches in solitary confinement, Mark Emery's happy to be back on Canadian soil. I'm very grateful to be home. Windsor's home. All of Canada's home. U.S. immigration dropped him off at the border between Detroit and Windsor. As soon as he arrived, a welcome back from his supporters and his wife. I think it definitely has opened the eyes of all Canadians, um, his national exposure. That sentence came from a justice system that viewed Emery as a public enemy when it came to marijuana. He started selling seeds in 1994 from a store in B.C. to customers in the United States. Now that he's out, he plans to lash out politically. So help me God, we are going to bury this prohibition next year in this federal election coming up. His wife wants to join that battle. Jody Emery is seeking a nomination to run federally for the Liberals. The Harper Conservative government, their prohibition policy, benefits only gangsters and police budgets. Emery, whose arrest was described by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency as a significant blow to the legalization movement, takes credit for helping to change how marijuana is viewed in the U.S. Both Colorado and Washington state have legalized recreational use, and 23 states now allow medical marijuana. At Emery's store in Vancouver, they're looking forward to his return. Well, I'm working for him, and I've never actually met my own boss yet. Emery says he has no intention of returning to Canada and just sliding into obscurity. An election is widely expected next year, and he's embarking on a tour of 30 cities, continuing to push his message to legalize. Scott Laurie, CTV News, Windsor, Ontario. Well, she's considered a secret weapon for the Liberal Party, who apparently are wooing the Princess of Pot to come into their fold. 
Another star candidate for Justin Trudeau's party, a candidate who would shake up the B.C. vote in the next federal election and offer up some bench strength for a party leader who has to sell his pot plan to the rest of the country. She's Jody Emery. She joins us now. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So why now, why would I now go into, you know, the, the mainstream politics? Well, as you may know, the Liberal Party has discussed legalization for some time. Trudeau himself voted for mandatory minimums, though, so Mark Emery, my husband, has called him a hypocrite on that. And I've been on Sun News also commenting, honestly, that Justin Trudeau has been disappointing. But he has looked at the science, he's looked at the facts and public opinion and the example down south, and seeing that prohibition is a failed policy. So I just joined the Liberal Party federally. I'm a new member. I haven't been an insider. Just a few months ago, I was on Sun News saying yeah. that I wasn't going to join the party. But with legalization, being offered the benefit for Canadians in terms of billions of tax dollars in revenue and billions of dollars saved from prohibition enforcement has too much to pass up and it's the only party offering it. All right. Who can you sell this to? Because while it might be very popular in BC, it's not so popular the further east you go, especially on the East Coast. Well, it's definitely a hot-button topic, but the polls show that even conservative voters want legalization. It's not so much a partisan issue anymore. And the Liberal Party itself, Justin Trudeau, I've never met him, never seen him. They didn't reach out to me. I've been asked Did to Did you speak. reach out to them? I've spoken at Liberal Party events in Vancouver East, the riding in my hometown. And after a couple of years and seeing the work that they've done, they asked me to put my name in the process. So I still need to go against someone else who might want to run up against Libby Davies. Uh, but I'm putting my name out there and waiting for some feedback. And I think a lot of people might be a bit uncomfortable with the Mark Emery name. But as you commented on, there, there's a vote behind this. There are young people who could be going out to the vote, voting polls based on Mark Emery's uh, advice. Right. And your husband, Mark, gets out of jail after serving a five-year uh, term in the United States. He's out in two weeks. And then he has to spend a few weeks uh, kind of reintegrating back in. But once he's out... He'll become a huge part of your campaign, assuming you get the nod. You'll, you'll go across the country selling your ideas. Yeah, whether the Liberals have me run with them or not, we're still going to ask people to vote for them. Um, I would rather just talk about principles than a party. For me, this is more about my principles. And I would like to push the Liberals to adopt some more ideas of small government, fiscal responsibility. I mean, people are confused about where I am on the political spectrum. Am I conservative or am I right. left-wing? I think I just have ideas that don't belong anywhere. I really believe that this conservative government could be for free markets and could be for civil liberties, but they haven't and they failed and they seem to be promoting some businesses over others and that's not really fair, especially when tax dollars are used to subsidize that sort of favoritism. So I can't say that the Liberals wouldn't do the same sort of thing, but at least if I can get into office with any party, it's about the ideas getting into government, really, about spending efficiently. We don't need to raise taxes. 44% of our income mm -hmm. goes to taxes. It's being wasted. And I don't care if you're NDP, Liberal or Conservative, we need to do something about that. Now, if you run for the Liberals, you will be asked to vote for the party line. I mean, Mr. Trudeau has come out with his stance on abortion and other party issues. Are you willing to park your own you know, conscience to do what this party says? So I have considered this a lot. It's been a very long process of debating whether I should get involved this way or not. Uh, but I also know what it means to be practical with politics. It's a popularity contest. You know, you get mm -hmm. people in through name recognition and through just being recognized in the public. But parties never really seem to stay true to what they say in the first place anyway. I mean, I've been criticizing government for years. They don't ever stay true to their promises. So if I can get in there even just to try and hold their feet to the fire, perhaps, um, that would be great. Again, the party hasn't reached out to me, and I guarantee you there are a lot of liberals very nervous about me being associated with them. They don't want any affiliation with Mark Emery, especially after a lot of the controversy that they're 
has been. But I am someone that the public knows after all these years of my husband being gone. I've been asked to speak and I have ideas that I think a lot of Canadians can agree with. And that's why there's even discussion about me running instead of straight out refusal. Some interesting comments there by Jody. Um, I had very mixed feelings about that. You know, I have to say she did a great job of, of avoiding the inherent contradiction in some of the political tactics that she and Mark are employing, at least from our point of view. I agree with the basic ideas that she's supporting, but to suggest that these ideas have no political identity and don't belong anywhere, I think, is a misnomer. I'm not sure if that's going to help the long-term cause of legalizing cannabis. Interestingly enough, Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, when he, after returning to Canada, in the London Free Press headline, the headline read, uh, Emery doubts Gritz will back his wife on August 14th by Giuseppe Valianti. He, he says, I think the Liberals are nervous <coughs> about me, and it's reflected in the way they're treating my wife, he said on August 13th in Toronto, but did not elaborate. A Liberal Party spokesperson wouldn't comment directly on Jody's upcoming campaign, only saying the Liberals have open nominations in every riding and any Canadian can apply. Emery said if the party runs a, quote, transparent nomination campaign in Vancouver East, Jody will win. I'm very popular in that community, and I have no doubt I can get hundreds of signatures, he said. But Amory doubts the race will be clean. However, he said he won't stop campaigning nationally to get people to vote Liberal. Now, of course, I heard the latest poll out today. The Liberals are in the lead. If the election was held today, I think we'd be looking at a Liberal government nationally in Canada. Minority or majority? They didn't quite say. I didn't get a clear Hmm. idea on that. But, you know... Joey's talking about representing one point of view in a party that doesn't obviously share it. And I think if you're going to run for a political party, you, to some degree at least, have to represent the principles that that party represents. You can't just say, I'd rather talk about principles than party in that context. You have to choose or create a party that is consistent with your principles or your principles will be compromised to the point of working against you. That's been my observation over and over again. And and Jody listed these these comments, the things that she supports: small government, fiscal responsibility, free markets, civil liberties, fair and equitable taxations as principles she supports, but that the Liberal Party does not. And voting for the Liberal Party won't bring any of those things about any more than voting for Liberal will bring about legalized pot. I I just can't see it happening. I'm I'm in my sixties now, and I've heard about the Liberals going to legalize pot ever since I was a kid. Ever since Trudeau, at least. Never, oh, if not before. It seems to me there are no, the other Trudeau by then. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me there's already a lot of legal pot being grown in this country under the Conservative government, if the current media reports are to be believed. But these ideas do have a label. They're the right ideas, not the right wing, left wing, or center wing ideas, which are all based on the left. The reason that, quote, parties never seem to stay true to what they say in the first place is because they talk so many of the right ideas while practicing the left ideas, especially the conservatives, because they do more of the talking of the right. Mm -hmm. And left ideas never work to the benefit of the people. And if all the parties are really the same, then why pick just one? You know, it concerns me that after admitting that Justin Trudeau has been acting hypocritically, that anyone would take anything a hypocrite would say seriously. (laughs) You know, oh, he's a hypocrite, but hey, we're going to run with him because now he's telling us what we want to hear. It also concerns me that having admitted, as Mark did, that he doubts the liberal race will be run clean, that he would participate in that process. Do they do that to be practical, pragmatic? Is it real politic? 
How's that worked for liberty so far? Not not too not too good as far as I'm seeing. Well, as you yeah. pointed out previously, there's had never been a law changed without some sort of uh, rebellion. Well, maybe that's the strategy. Having said all that, if there's any federal party that's vulnerable to a philosophical and ideological takeover, it is and always has been the Liberal Party of Canada. Pierre Trudeau is proof of that. And we've discussed that very issue in detail on past broadcasts of this show. And that philosophical vulnerability may well be the key to Emery's choice of a party to support especially given that the federal NDP leader, Thomas Mulcair, says, as per the headline in the Free Press on August 21st, quote, smoking pot a personal choice, Mulcair says. And written by Jessica Hume, the article notes that NDP leader Thomas Mulcair believes the decision to smoke weed is a personal one and not something with which the criminal code should concern itself. Officially, the NDP's position is in favor of decriminalization, though Mulcair says more stakeholder consultation is needed to understand the implications of changing marijuana laws. The NDP has been saying for 40 years it makes no sense for someone to have a criminal record for possession or personal use, he said. End quote. Now, of course, Mulcair has con- contradicted himself several times just within those few comments I've quoted. I would fully agree with him that the criminal code should not concern itself with smoking pot. But I would never for a moment consider supporting the NDP over, the po- over that policy because the rest of the party is at, at extreme odds with that same advocacy. What he isn't saying, and which, which is the entire issue, is that buying or selling should still be subject to the criminal code, or he would have said explicitly so otherwise. The two policies, restrictions on buying and selling and freedom of personal use, cannot coexist. (laughs) They just can't. Just like the Harper's anti-prostitution bill, which is being touted still today. It's okay for women to sell sex, but it's illegal for men to buy it from those very same women. People who can think like this and accept such ideas, I think, have no place in the parliaments or legislatures of a free society. Having said that again, I don't believe for a moment that the Liberal Party would actually go ahead and legalize or decriminalize cannabis. Be nice to think. If it does happen, it'll be a first, and it will be a precedent for all of us to witness. This promise has been made by that party and others many times over the years with no progress in the field of legislation. Though, to be, to, to be fair, equitable enforcement has suffered tremendously. It's become completely arbitrary and selective, based not on the possession or use of the drug itself, but rather on the nature of the user. Consider what we just heard in the CTV report we played before the bumper. Mark was viewed as a public enemy by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and whose arrest was described by the DEA as a significant blow to the legalization movement. says it all. (laughs) It doesn't say anything about, well, we arrested him because, you know, he uh, he did illegal drugs or he sold us this or that or the other thing or even the act of which he's guilty. Just it's a blow against the movement. You Political, know, yeah, totally. Totally, and it was when they extradited him, too. I mean, how does arresting one person for selling one seed internationally through the mails possibly constitute a significant anything to anything? And, of course, the real conversation I see missing from this whole debate is the only one that matters. While everyone's arguing about the positives and negatives of some particular drug use, the real issue, putting people in prisons for such use, has become a side issue rather than the main issue. It should be the other way around. No one should ever have to go to jail simply for using or possessing any particular substance. They should only be subject to criminal considerations based on their criminal behavior, behavior that violates the rights or liberties of their fellow citizens. If drugs are involved, that's a whole other issue, but it's a side issue.
Once we put the unnecessary legal issues behind us, only then can we properly focus on the actual use or non-use of a particular drug. We've got to quit talking about drugs and start talking about freedom, individual responsibility, and good governance. Otherwise, nothing will really change in the drug monopoly except the players and the new kings and princes of pot. We're nowhere near the light at the end of the tunnel on this issue, but the light will continue to be near the end of the joint, I think, no matter which way the law (laughs) turns on this. Now, as we go to our next break, I I just had to put this this, uh, next clip in because it's so indicative of Canada's weird attitude towards drugs. You know, Canada has very ambiguous and contradictory views, attitudes, and policies about drugs and drug use, and protest or discussion. In London, our police still say just no to 420 festivities, for heaven's sakes, as reported in the April 19th Free Press. doesn't sound very tolerant there. But uh, we do offer free crack pipes for addicts and free needles for other (laughs) addictive drugs. But then there's the opposite side of the coin. To get a sense of what I'm talking about, it really amazes me in a way that a Canadian comic, David Steinberg, without being arrested or publicly condemned from coast to coast, could could on a state-funded national broadcaster, the CBC, as MC and host of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival several years back, reminisce about and lament his past use of drugs so casually and so positively. Let's listen in. You know, um, Miles Davis, the incredible jazz musician, was a friend of mine. I mean, we didn't hang around much, we were sort of good friends. We met when I was in a Broadway play. It was a two Broadway plays. One of them was starring his girlfriend at the time, was Cicely Tyson. We just got to be good friends. And I never understood a word that Miles said to me. <laughs> he was a mumbler. And he, I don't think he cared if you heard what he said. We were always, you know, David. And we just became friends. And I never understood a word he said. I don't think he understood what I said. But, you know, that was our relationship. I was working one night at the Bitter End, and he came to see me. And uh, after the show, he said, yeah, party. So I said, is there a party? I said, yeah, the, the Ronowitz. There's a party at Al Ronowitz's house. He was a journalist at the time. So we went to this party, and it was the uh, 60s, you know, and Miles always had the most beautiful women around him. I was a bachelor. There was all it, it, the 60s. So we're at the party, and um, I'm sort of talking to people, Miles, and then Miles comes up to me and he goes, Hey, David, some Coke. I said, What? He said, Hey, you want Coke? So I couldn't tell if he was offering me cocaine or if he thought that I had the cocaine, but in those days, you know, I'm not a schmuck. I said, Sure. So we go into the bathroom together, and... It's embarrassing because I still don't know if he expects me to have the drug or if he has the drug. And goes into his pocket, thank God, and he takes out a little vial of cocaine. Now, you know, at that time it was great. It was even before it was considered an addiction. It was sort of like a dram buoy. You never really got drunk on a dram buoy. But he took out the tiniest spoon I've ever seen in my life. It was just a t- You could hardly see the spoon part of it. And he put a little bit in it, and, went, and then he took a tiny little bit, and he put it in my nose. I thought, oh my God, this is like the littlest, of, I mean, please, if you're going to give the guy cocaine. And I went, and one and the other. And it was like the miracle of Hanukkah. I was up for eight days. 
I closed them. I was still talking. I was the last one talking. I don't know what he put in that stuff, but I am one who misses drugs. I miss, I'm sorry it's not around. I can talk about it in Canada because my children aren't listening. I have two teenage daughters, Sasha and Rebecca, uh, 19 and 16, and the boys are around. You know, and I, I, no matter what they say, I hear, hi, Mr. Steinberg, we're here to have sex with your daughters. <laughs>
pretty straight laced bunch of people, but from that particular well, clip... Well, this was a teacher that was the issue, not the student. The teacher was, his attitude was, <laughs> yeah. I, I found his, his to be uh, really strange. He was very um, immature. But there's so much to take from that particular clip from that Boston Public that um, we can use it to illustrate many of the problems with current models of education. Uh, first of all, we have a history teacher psychoanalyzing James Madison and his alleged inferiority complex due to his height. What exactly this opinion and minutia has to do with U.S. history is, is as unclear to you and I as it must have been to the fictional students in that TV drama. We see a lack of motivation, as demonstrated by the one black student who f- falls into the trap of placing importance on uh, irrelevancies by pointing out that more important than Madison's height is Jefferson's slave ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, we see the teacher adopting a, a condescending, immature tone to try to correct the student's unruly um, behavior or the uh, it's almost like the battle over eurocentric uh you know the eurocentric point of view in education everything's european what we learn in in our history what do you mean well from from the background of, of what is significant to to western civilization oh i right? see yeah you know yeah, yeah sure um, a lot of I, those things were true, but irrelevant in terms of the historical lesson. Well, it's true, yes, and we're going to get into that. Uh, a lot of these facts may have been true, but out of context. Um, we gather from the teacher that what he is saying is indeed lies, but they're lies the student must remember and regurgitate in order to pass the course. And while granted this account is fictional, there's some truth to all of the negative elements present. And mm-hmm. like you just said, you've sure. experienced some of them yourself. Now, I recently picked up a new book by Leonard Peikoff. It's a compilation of lectures given on the topic of education and edited by Marlene Trollope. It clearly and concisely outlines exactly what's wrong with current and past education philosophies, both public and in private, and how an education system based on the principle of, of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism might compare. Now, this is from his introduction to the book, quote, I went to an 8th grade class on Western European history in a highly regarded non-progressive school with a university affiliation. The subject of the day was, why does human history constantly change? This is an excellent question, which really belongs to the philosophy of history. What factors, the teacher was asking, move history and explain men's past actions? Here are the answers he listed on the board. Competition among classes for land, money, power, or trade routes. Disasters and catastrophes such as wars and plagues, the personality of leaders, innovations, technology, new discoveries, potato and coffee were included here, and developments in the rest of the world, which interacts with a given region. Now at this point, time ran out, but think of what else could qualify as a cause in this kind of approach. What about a nearest press or media of, communi- media of communication? Is, there, is this a factor in history? What about people's psychology, including their sexual proclivities? What about the art or geography? What about the weather? Do you see the hodgepodge of the students are being given? History, they're told, is moved by power struggles and diseases and potatoes and wars and chance personalities. Who can make sense out of such a chaos? Here's a random multiplicity thrown at a youngster without any attempt to conceptualize it, to reduce it to an intelligible unity to trace the operation of principles. This is perceptual-level history. History is nothing but a torrent of unrelated, disintegrated concretes. You know, I suffered through that myself in history class. It was, you know, I could get uh, 90s 
percent in in all the sciences and maths came to history i was just floating around 50 percent if i was lucky because i really couldn't put all the all the dots all together. All the pieces you know? together, yeah. That's what he's talking about here. Exactly. Yeah. He goes on, the American Revolution, to take a specific example, was once taught in the schools at a conceptual level. The revolution's manifold aspects were identified, then united and explained by the principle, the commitment of the colonists to, in- to individual rights and their consequent resolve to throw off the tyrant's yoke. This was a lesson students could understand and find relevant in today's world. But now the same event is ascribed to a whole list of alleged courses, or I'm sorry, causes. The students are given 10 or even 50 causes of the revolution, including the big landowners' desire to preserve their estates, the southern planters' desire for a cancellation of their English debts, the Bostonians' opposition to tea taxes, the western land speculators' need to expand past the Appalachians, and so forth. No one can retain such a list longer than is required to pass the exam. It must be memorized, then regurgitated, then happily and thoroughly forgotten. This, just like you did, Bob, this is all one can do with unrelated concretes. If the students were taught by avowed Marxist, Peikoff says, if they were told that history reflects the clash between the factors of production and the modes of ownership, It would be dead wrong, but it would still be a principle, an integrating generalization, and it would be much less harmful to the student's ability to think. They might still be open to argument on the subject, but to teach them an unconceptualized hash is to imply that history is a tale told by an idiot without wider meaning or relevance to the presence. This approach destroys the possibility of the students thinking or caring at all about the field, unquote. Now, that reminds me of uh, one friend of ours who uh, decided to put his children into a Catholic school rather than public school for that very reason. He said that, at least in the Catholic school, it is not a disintegrated model of teaching. It is an integrated model. It's wrong. (laughs) I mean, this fellow grew up Catholic but is no longer Catholic. It's a wrong model, but... It at least is a model of integration, and that's what he saw in the Catholic system, and that's why he put his students, or his children rather, in that system. Now, Teaching Johnny to Think is a book very much complementary to two of Dr. Peacock's other books, The Dim Hypothesis, recently released last year, which I've uh, talked about in show number 343, if you want to go back to have a look at that from our website, justremedia.org, and a recent compilation of his lectures on communications titled Objective Communication, Writing, Speaking, and Arguing. Now, in DIM, Peikoff introduces us to a new way of looking at epistemology. People can be integrators of the facts, disintegrators of the facts, or misintegrators of the facts. Disintegration is shown in the example I just quoted from Peikoff's trip to an 8th grade history class. Misintegration is integrating the facts into a unity, but doing it incorrectly, leaving us with What's left is correctly integrating knowledge. In objective communication, one of the key elements Peacock identifies as being able to communicate, or in our case today, teach, um, and is properly identifying what might motivate the listener or the student. Throwing a disintegrated hodgepodge of facts at a student is not going to motivate them. And of course, what's the result? It's going to be failure. Not necessarily failure from the class, because everybody passes these days, but failure in life as a student. Let's take a little break and we'll come back. I'm going to talk a little bit more about teaching Johnny to think. Why is this so important? We know the exact dates. 
It's all over 100 years ago. Why do we have to know the exact dates? Because the exact date will be on the test, Mr. Pratt. And if the students don't do well on the test, the school loses money. I could even be reassigned. Wouldn't that be an incentive for you to know the exact date, Mr. Pratt? I know it's important in American history. I don't need to know what time it happened or what day of the stupid week. Oh, you know everything that's important. Well, in American history, yes, I do. Well, let's test your knowledge then. Did you know, Mr. Pratt, that you're a big dick? Do we have any other big dicks with us today? Well, it seems you're the only one, Mr. Pratt. Now sit down and learn the dates now. We know, of course, the Earth is round, but the universe, that's a different question, and it's fascinating. It could be a continuum, which is flat. It could be a positive curvature, or perhaps even a negative curvature. It's really quite fascinating. Does it have a beginning, an end? These are all fascinating questions. None of which I can answer today, unfortunately. The scientific term for that is bummer. <laughs> Always like to end my class with humor. Chapter 17 for tomorrow's students. Jeremy, might I have a word with you? Listen, I repeat my congratulations for your midterm. You score a perfect 100. You should be very pleased. Thank you. You don't strike me as pleased, however, and uh, I think we both know why. You're not challenged. Well, I am, sir. I want you to know, if there's any topics or projects beyond the scope of our curriculum that interest you, I'm always here in the afternoon. I want all my students to be challenged. Okay, sir. Thank you. You know, in teaching Johnny to think, Peacock reviews five theories of education. I'm going to go through them very briefly here. Now, just uh, listen to them, Bob, because I think you'll probably identify just more than one that happened in your school. As, it, as they did in mine. Now, the classical theory teaches as much facts as possible and as uh, successful if Johnny has accumulated a great store of facts, just facts. The socialization theory regards education as a means of socializing a child. If someone chooses to, to homeschool their child, the typical response from others is? I don't know. What? How are they going to learn how to socialize? Oh, well. How to get along with other, school, other, other children if, they don't, if you don't send them to school? A child who graduates from this kind of school is successful if he relates well to others regardless of what he, he knows or doesn't know. Now, the child-centered theory, we've all heard this one. This is the one uh, most common theories of education and is predominant in Ontario's public schools. It believes that every child is unique and learns differently from every other child and the teacher. Rather than teaching a class of 30 children, a single lesson must first take and ascertain um, and take into account the individual learning style of each child and gear his teaching to each one. Success is demonstrated by the independence of the child. Now, the moral behavioral theory emphasizes the development of morality in the child. A successful child in this system is one of good character. And the last theory is the cognitive theory, where the amount of knowledge a child learns is irrelevant. 
And what is important is can he learn how to think and learn for himself? Now, the problem with all these theories, Peikoff explains, is not the expected results, which are laudable. Who, who, who doesn't want a child to learn to think for himself, to be sociable, to be independent, to be a good character? And to know and have the a facts. lot of facts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> these are all good, laudable goals. The problem is the fact that the implementation of one method usually means the exclusion of the others. The result is that we end up with children of good moral character, but who are illiterate, or children who know how to think for themselves, but are given no guidance as to what is important to learn, or children who are sociable, but can't add without a calculator. Peacock further breaks down the current education theories into branches of philosophy. They fall into either the intrinsic or the subjective theories of cognition. Now, the intrinsic theory of cognition, Peacock explains, holds that all we have to do to acquire knowledge is simply let reality act on us. It is not necessary to focus on our minds or consciousness or our cognitive faculty, faculty, our reason. That's irrelevant. Just pour in all the data you can and the child's mind will act like a mirror. Knowledge is simply a passive, mind-absorbing what reality thrusts on it. The subjective school he says, holds that we should focus on the development of our consciousness apart from worrying about reality. Now, this dichotomy, Peikoff believes, the intrinsic versus the subjective, permeates our whole culture, and it pervades and corrupts the entire field of education and the philosophy of education. Peikoff promotes what he calls the objective theory of cognition. Quote, I use the term objective, he says, to stand for the approach to cognition that is neither intrinsic nor subjective. Objectivity means grasping reality by some specific human method. It means using your consciousness in certain steps, according to certain rules, in order to discover the facts of reality. And that is the essence of the proper theory of education, unquote. To Peikoff, Education is the systematic process of training the minds of the young, both in the essential content and the proper method. Once you've set upon the proper philosophy of education, the question is raised, of course, what then should be the proper curriculum? Peacock believes that a proper curriculum consists of three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and four other subjects. Mathematics, which is the science of measurement, beyond arithmetic, of course, which is simply numbers and their operations. History, the study of man through his past actions. Science, the facts about nature and how to discover them. And literature, the sum total of world literary fiction, epics, novels, plays, and poems. Now, the result of such an education, a proper curriculum presented in a systematic way and integrated into a cognitive whole, will result in a student with all of the successful rubrics that all other methods of education hope for, but only achieve in isolation. Students of good moral character, who are knowledgeable about the world, independent in thought, and able to learn for themselves once they've graduated. Dr. Peikoff does spend a chapter on teaching the uh, teachers how to teach, but it can be best (laughs) summed up with this by him. Quote, I say close down the schools of education. (laughs) (laughs) something I've called for at most all that is required is a one year post high school course on practical advice tips on motivating how to give exams with the least pain managing discipline problems how to organize your curriculum but certainly 
not years of study, or even a year of study. I'd agree. Having spoken to people going through Teachers College here, Altas College here in London, and having examined some of the textbooks they've used, I have to say that the bulk of their training is spent on left-wing political ideology, studying feminist theory, multicultural sensitivity, and such similar political pursuits. Using Ayn Rand's and his own objective techniques, Dr. Peikoff has, through his lecture series on education, integrated the philosophies and politics of education into a cogent whole and offered a way out of the morass of conflicting theories and experiments our children are subjected to. He's optimistic that an objective theory of education is obtainable, and I'd have to agree. The task is to convince today's students interested in becoming teachers that there is a way to, to produce better outcomes for students. I personally see this happening in private schools first before it can move into the public system, which is just a huge beam of, uh, uh, of bureaucracy, very slow to change. Only in private schools is there an incentive to produce better outcomes for students. So I'll say again what I've said before on this show. If you have the means, take your child out of the public education system. If you can, you should enroll them in a private system, but only after looking into the theory of education of that school and seeing how closely it matches an objective theory of education as presented by Peacock in Teaching Johnny to Think. For the young ones, it would be a Montessori system, which I have personal knowledge about and Dr. Peacock favors up to a certain age. And by the way, that is what Montessori created her system for. It was only for very young children, yeah. only maybe grade one, two, that kind of a thing. Failing to find a proper school in your area, I recommend teaching your child by tutor or by yourself if you've the time and the knowledge. And I realize, of course, that not everybody does. But to leave them in today's public education system is to ill-prepare them to face reality and to stunt their intellect and, finally, their joy of learning. And that will be the real tragedy. So I urge people to go out there and have a look at that. I got it off of uh, Amazon, I believe. It's called Teaching Johnny to Think, a philosophy of education based on the principles of Ayn Rand's objectivism. It's a lecture series by Dr. Leonard Peikoff that he did, I believe, in the 80s. And it was edited by Marlene Trollope, T-R-O-L-L-O-P-E. And that's all I have for today, Bob. Very, very interesting, Robert. Brings me brings memories back of our mutual uh, fight in front of the Board of Education over whole language. Versus phonics. Versus phonics. Yeah. And, you know, just what uh, Peikoff said about grasping reality objectively via certain specific rules. That's how you have to grasp reading as well. Of course. And the way they've been tossing it to them is very subjective ways and intrinsic ways. Whole language and, versus and phonics is an ideal example of exactly what he's talking about. Precisely. Yeah. Um, I think that's it for this week. We've got to wrap up for another week. So until next week, be sure to join us again when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be you know what I learned today, Mr. Carter? I'll tell you what I learned today. I learned that I don't know nothing. No, Vinny, you don't know anything. See?